Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, starting in 27, in verse 27. Now, if you recall, what Paul has been doing in chapter 1 is he is covering the situation that he is in. He first talks about how his imprisonment, even though we might say, well, it's not great to be in jail, but he says it's a good thing because he views his imprisonment, in fact, he views his whole life uh, through the lens of the gospel. If this situation, whatever it is, is causing people, allowing people to be saved and churches are growing and more people are being saved, In Rome, the Praetorian Guard, as Paul calls them, the personal bodyguards of Caesar, are being saved. And Paul could, if he wanted to, you know, have little hash marks because he's hearing this person, that person, this person, that person, this person. He can count the number of people, at least by hearing about it, that are being saved. And he looks at how effective he was before he was in prison And now he's much more effective. The gospel is being preached more widely and more people are being saved. And so Paul is able to look at this and say, this is clearly a good thing. This is clearly God's will. This is not some sort of self-serving disobedience, but it is God doing this because it is God who saves. He then talks about his release and he says he will be delivered one way or another from prison. Ultimately, we are all delivered from this life. But Paul is saying perhaps he will die in prison and that's okay. Perhaps he will be released from prison and return to the church at Philippi and that's okay. Whatever happens is God's will in his life and he's not going to regret and he's not going to hate what's happening because clearly God is in charge of what's happening. And then if you were to ask the question, if you were in the church of Philippi reading this, you might ask, well, what about us? And he tells us in verses 27 and 28, he now says what the responsibility of the church in Philippi and then ultimately what our responsibility is as we read through Scripture We don't get to pick and choose and we can look at a teaching like 27 and 28 and say, well, that was written to a church. I'm in a church. Can I say that was written to me? So we look at cultural problems and we look at things that are specific to Paul. And there's actually none of that in 27 and 28, so we can take it word for word and apply it to this church and you can apply it to your life. 
One thing to note about the church in Philippi is that it was in the town of Philippi. And the town of Philippi was a totally Roman city. You would go there and like you might go to oh, Solvang today and you say that it's a, it's a throwback to, to uh, you know, European sort of bakeries and crafts and things of this nature. If you were walking through modern cities back then and you walked into Philippi, there would be no question that this is a Roman city. There'd be no question that these people liked Rome, that it was clear that Roman money was coming into the city. They had good Roman architecture. There was good Roman temples to the, to the Roman gods. And so the idea of this being a purely Roman town, you would have the assumption and the belief that the people there were citizens of Rome. And you wouldn't become a stand-up comic, uh, you know, criticizing the Caesar, the emperor, and things like that. It wouldn't go over well in Philippi because they liked their emperor. They liked their Caesar. They liked what he was doing, and they wanted to do more of it. It was a quintessential Roman town. In fact, it had the nickname of Little Rome, that if you were to go there, you would believe that you were, because of the architecture and the layout, that you were in downtown Rome, Italy. Okay, But you were not. You were in this little town called Philippi, and that is what Paul is writing into. And he has to stand or sit in amazement at how God is moving in this town. If you were thinking about a town that the gospel could really take off in, Philippi would not be the choice because they loved Rome. They worshipped the emperor as a town activity. And for somebody to come in and say, no, the emperor is not a god. In fact, Jesus Christ is the only one true and living God that you have to worry about at this point. <coughs> and so to do that, God had to be using a major work. God's hand of the Holy Spirit was upon Philippi and it had to amaze Paul. And so Paul, not only talking about himself, begins to put demands or requirements upon the people at the church of Philippi and he's totally unabashed about it. He doesn't apologize about this. It's very difficult today to give truth to somebody because they might be oh so offended and then we're having a difficult time with our witness or a difficult time with the gospel there is a belief and an understanding, and we can see how clearly it was that when people, Paul, so Paul plants a church, then he's arrested. And it would have been easy for them to go, ah, he's a charlatan, or he's, you know, in it for the money. He got arrested because he was embezzling, or something of this nature. You can make stories about Paul to discount the gospel, but that doesn't seem to be happening. Now, Paul, in 
uh, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you're doing this, this, and this. In other words, Paul is not saying, tell me that you're a Bible reader. He's saying, when people in your church come and visit in Rome, he wants to hear good stories about you. He wants to hear what we might today call gossip, but if it's good, if it uplifts Christ, it's not gossip. It's just good stories about other Christians. That if I were um, talking, we have missionaries in New Zealand, and we communicate via email, and mostly it's them telling us what they are doing, but if they were to ask me about this person or that person in the church, and I were to honestly respond, then that is a level of evidence that me telling you how good I am does not contain. That if you tell somebody else how good I am, or I tell somebody else how obedient you are, then that carries a weight because it means your obedience is external. It means you are not locking yourself in your home, claiming to do great theological Bible study. It is actually outworking in your life that you are in the church setting at a minimum, being Christ to the people that are around you such that they notice it so that if somebody were to ask them, they would tell them about your obedience. And the first thing he talks about is live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the word manner is daily practice, okay? If I have a manner of speaking, it means I speak that way all the time. If I have a manner of you know, do it, talking about this subject, then I will always talk about this subject. And if you are asked, what does the pastor talk about? Well, it's football, football, all the time football, you know, and then you got Super Bowl, there's football all the time. And you would notice that because it was my manner. It was something that I do as part of me. And so he's saying... Your way of life, your manner of doing things that people would notice is to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is an interesting way to look at it because it's very easy to look at that and say, well, Paul is saying, works salvation. I must live a certain way and do a certain thing. But the message of all of the Bible, it's clear in the New Testament, <coughs> but it is present throughout the Old Testament. I am unable to save myself. God can come and give me all manner of rules, and he has. God has given me all manner of rules. I can't keep them. You put me in a group of other people, and as a group, we will be unable to keep them. The whole point of the stories in the Old Testament is that God says, 
turn right. And they go, ha ha, I'm going to turn left. I'm going to do it my way and we'll see how it turns out. And God punishes. God punishes initially with kicking them out of the Garden of Eden. Then he punishes with a flood. Then he punishes with wars and conquests and things of this nature that every time God says do one, two, and three, they say, aha, I'm going to do five, six, and seven, and it's going to be better, and I'm going to do something that is going to be better for me, and God says, oh, no, it's not. That is the history of the world. You look out today, God's, there are more Bibles printed than all the other books combined, okay? It isn't just kind of popular. We print, you and I, and Christians everywhere, more Bibles than all the other books combined, okay? That's why in the counting of books, Bible is never included, because it's always number one, okay? They, they figure out movable type in a printing press. First thing that is printed for the first eight years is only Bibles, okay? Because that's what Christians do. We believe the Bible saves people, that God works through the Bible, and so we print them and we hand them out, and we hand them out for free. There are more Bibles given away free than sold in the world today. I say all that because if I meet somebody at McDonald's and I say, do you believe in God? And they say, I don't know anything about God. They are lying. There are preaching, there are Bible. I would wager the average person who says they know nothing about God has at least one Bible at home perhaps belong to their parents or their grandparents. The information is there. We put fingers in our ears and close our eyes and say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't want, and we try to drown it out. But the information is there. So if we're talking about living a certain way, Nobody who's really trying can say, I don't know the rules. I don't know what to do. I don't know what God wants of me. What they're really saying is, I have refused to look. I have refused to care about what God wants of me. So he's saying, live worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what does this mean? I'm saved by grace, not by works. Therefore, you don't boast. I am saved by grace through faith. I am saved when I believe that Jesus Christ did what he did and saved me. The phrase we use today is, I make Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of my life. He has a sacrifice that he is offering everybody, and I take it. And I say, this is going to be mine. I am going to give my life to you. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one who enables me and does all that work, but it is 
I don't have to do anything. I don't have to dress a certain way. I don't have to speak a certain way. I don't have to have a certain translation of the Bible. I don't, I don't, nothing I do, nothing that is, can be called a do is involved in this. It is 100% spiritual and mental and emotional, okay? Put myself into Christ and boom, I'm saved. Now what Paul is saying is to get this to happen, to get you saved, Christ did all this. This is called the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is I cannot save myself. The, go the gospel is Jesus Christ as the first mover died for me while I am still a sinner. I did not want him to die for me. I did not ask him to die for me. Okay? He died for me against my wishes. Okay? He died for me and then worked to get me to accept the gospel. And eventually, many people, the will is broken, we accept, and we live worthy of the gospel. In other words, I live like I earned it. I live like I bought it. I live like I convinced God to die for me. Okay? I didn't, but what Paul is saying is, look at the great gift that God has given you. Now live like you earned it. Live like it's yours. If I am saved and I live like the devil, as they say, I don't live like Christ. If I live like the devil, then people are going to see me and say, either Christianity is just a club or you're not really saved. Because if I live like I am earning it, if I am living obediently and honestly and faithfully and putting Christ first and asking myself every day, you can, I have this on a post-it, ask yourself every day, it says, did you put Christ first in everything? Okay? And I see that. It's on my computer monitor in my office. Okay? And so I can ask myself that. And if I say no, I can say, well, that means I'm living for myself. So I can try to fix that. I can pray about that. I can ask other people to pray about it. But you live like you earned the gospel. You earned the salvation. You did not, but we live like we did. How would somebody who is trying to convince God to send his son to die for me, how would somebody like that act? Well, that's kind of a way you act. That's one way of giving a measure of how you would act. And then he gives, he gives two ways that we pull this off. He says that I may hear that you are standing firm. Okay? You look through the New Testament, nowhere does it say fight for God. Nowhere does it say pick up a sword and fight the devil. Okay, that is not a thing in the Bible because God knows that the devil is better than you. 
and the devil's bigger than you. And if anybody's going to fight the devil, it's going to be God himself. So we are not told onward Christian soldiers is not found in the Bible. Good song, good militant moving forward song, but it is not biblical. We are not God's soldiers. But you say, well, what about Ephesians and the armor of God? Don't, don't soldiers wear armor? And you say, yeah, okay, well, let's look at that. And you have all this stuff. You have the breastplate and the belt and the shoes and the helmet and a sword. And then what do you do? You just stand there. All we've got to do in the New Testament is stand. Now, if you're standing, you aren't doing nothing. Okay? If you're standing, you are not being moved. That is the important part of the Christian life. No matter what happens to me, I am not going to move. I'm not going to move theologically. I'm not going to move emotionally. I will not let my emotions like fear cause me to run away. Because if I run away, I'm moving. But if I am standing for God, if I am standing as a believer in Jesus Christ, I am not moving. And we'll look in a second about what's going to come against you. But as things push against you, that's where the armor of God comes in. They are defensive. Okay? They are allowing me to stand and stand in such a way that I'm not going to move. Now, Paul talks about two aspects of your life, one spirit and one mind, okay? Now, some people look at this and go, ah, the one spirit is the Holy Spirit. Yeah, maybe, I don't know, it's a lowercase s, and so we don't know if this is meaning it's salvation, okay? If it's the Holy Spirit, it means salvation, but if it means we're all of the same spirit of how we relate to God and we're all of the same mind, it doesn't mean we all like the same kind of ice cream. It doesn't mean we all, you know, like the same football team. It doesn't mean we all like anything that is a preference in the world. It means we're of the same mind about Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ is, who, what Jesus Christ has done, and since I live out that spiritually through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are all of the same spirit. And so when we come to church and we gather together, last Sunday of the month we're going to have a fellowship meal in the fellowship hall. We're going to gather together and we're going to eat. We can agree about everything because we agree about the important things. And what football team you like, while we're here at least, is inconsequential, is meaningless to my salvation, therefore I don't care. You know, I will support you in whatever team you support. 
but it doesn't matter to me because it has nothing to do with my salvation. We're in the same mind concerning Christ. We're in the same spirit concerning Christ, and that is all that really matters. And Paul says we have to strive, therefore. Strive means to work. We all know what striving is. It means putting in the hours. It means doing the hard stuff side by side for the faith. Our goal as we come here together is to grow as Christians and to bring in new Christians. We strive for the work of God. We strive for what God is doing to us as a family. Then it ends by, by saying, so don't be afraid of your opponent. Don't function out of fear. And you say, well, what's my, who's my, what's my opponent? What's the, you know, what's going on here? Ultimately, even though you do not fight him, Satan is your number one op opponent. Best way I heard it is that God, Satan cannot kill God, Okay. Satan cannot even, in a fair fight, beat God, okay? Satan is weak compared to God. And so Satan looks at his playbook and he says, I can't hurt God, I can't even beat God, but I can hurt those he loves. I can beat those he loves, and that's us. That Satan attacks us not because... He, he attacks us because he can, because we are the best he can get to hurting God. And Satan rarely, around here at least, is going to appear with his pitchfork and horns and attack you. He is going to make his minions attack you. And so who is, the <coughs> who is our opponent's? Today, right here, right now, I think number one, and it's clear from everything you see and hear, the government at all levels is against churches. And if you put the Bible ahead of allegiance to this organization or that government organization, you are considered an enemy of the state. There are more politicians who have said the number one thing wrong with America are Christians, and they've said it recently in the last several months. There are, our congressman for this district has set his goal as removing all churches from Alameda County. He told that to me to my face when we were having county problems. And I called his office. He made it very clear he had no time for a church. Churches were evil. Churches were bad. And so we keep electing people that are against us, which is weird in this sort of democracy thing. But there are organizations, there are individuals who follow the worldly mainstream who think they have no time for you if you're a believer in God. Now Paul in asking or telling the people at Philippi to follow God, he uses a word polytemiu. That is a Greek word 
and it means good citizen. He wants us to be good citizens of heaven. He doesn't want us to be good citizens of San Lorenzo or good citizens of California or even good citizens of America. We are functional citizens of that, but we're good citizens of heaven. I am a citizen of heaven ultimately, and eventually all this is going to burn. That's what the Bible says. God's going to burn it all, and I'll be in heaven, and so why not practice today being a good citizen of heaven? And so we stand, and we stand of one mind, and we strive, and we're not alarmed when things of the world come against us. We are in the world, but not of the world. The world is of Satan. We are in heaven, of God. And so when th even things that come directly against us, we don't respond out of fear. And Paul says, if you don't respond out of fear, that is evidence that you're saved. You say, I'm not sure if I'm saved. One test is to think about those who are against you. Do you respond to them out of terror or fear? Are you scared of them? Or do you just see them as an annoying inconvenience because God's going to win. God is winning. God has won. And so God has a plan. And the plan is, apparently, to save us and then cause us to live in enemy territory for the rest of our lives. And we do it to grow spiritually ourselves and to bring others along, to give life jackets to those who are drowning and dying. And then when it's all said and done, God is going to bring you home, either by death or by rapture. One way or the other, Christians will make it into the presence of God, and He will look at you and He will say, well done, good and faithful servant, and you will think in your mind, yep, God won. God always wins. God's not going to lose. God always wins, and He will win in the end. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we praise Your name. We praise Your name for the fact that You have a plan, and You are winning, and that we come along for the ride. Lord, we praise You for that. I pray that You would give us the strength to stand firmly on Your Gospel, and to not be afraid when things go against us. Lord, we praise you for that and ask your blessing upon this time. We ask this in the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.